0: Greetings and welcome to episode 46 of Beyond Waasya. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. Today we're going to head to the colonies, the first colonies that the Japanese Empire acquired, Taiwan and Korea, and we're going to take a look at what's going on there. We're going to try to understand some of the details of how the Japanese approached their first formal colonies uh, acquired through various acts of war, um, what sort of imperial precedent were they going to follow when they get Korea and Taiwan from about 1895 to 1910 in this 15-year period? Uh, they have to imagine, what are we going to do with these colonies? How are we going to approach them? What will be our guiding vision of how we're going to rule them? Uh, so that's one thing that we, that we need to talk about, the sort of imperial vision, what precedent um, that Japan is going to be looking looking to in the way they're going to rule these new, these, uh, new places that are clearly um, very different uh, from the Japanese home islands, very different even from Okinawa and Hokkaido. Um, second, we need to talk a little bit about sort of the frameworks that are going to be created that are going to evolve to distinguish different parts of the empire. And by this, I mean, um, how do the Japanese make sense of the different components? Is there a graded sort of hierarchy? Uh, how are the different components of the empire imagined to exist as a whole? Is it sort of, uh, we're all going to be equal, um, or at least sometime in the future? Is there explicit inequality? If so, is it uh, uniform across the board? Or is there sort of a graded hierarchy in which some places will have one vision, and some places will have another vision? And the way we're gonna talk about that is we're going to talk about uh, the two conceptual terms, Naichi versus Gaichi, uh, sort of the inner territories um, and the outer territories as one of the geographical ways of distinguishing among the different components of empire. Uh, Taiwan and Korea are both going to be part of the inner territory designation, Naichi, as you might expect, being the earliest acquired colonies. We'll have to talk a little bit about uh, which colonies get the position of a governor general, sort of someone who has autocratic powers, who is sent from the homelands to uh, impose a, a, a very firm rule um, without a whole lot of outside interference. Uh, what parts of the empire are seen as suitable to have this sort of grand autocratic personage? And then finally, who do you give weapons to? That's a very important question. Um, who do you feel comfortable handing over a gun to and putting a uniform on? Uh, being part of the police force or the uh, military—these um, three different ways of thinking about empire and the various territories within your empire—it's um, not going to be sort of a clean distinction among all three of them. Sometimes you're going to see interesting areas of overlap in which something will uh, be designated a outer territory, but will still get a governor general. Or some places where early on they will decide, you know, what, we're comfortable integrating the natives uh, and uh, bringing some of them into the police force, um, even though they might not have a governor general or something like that. Um, So these things are sort of like a Venn diagram in which uh, there's different ways of thinking about it. And sometimes they overlap and make sense with the other criteria for thinking about the empire. And sometimes they don't. And then finally, some of the more details, the nitty-gritty details of Taiwan and Korea. Um, it's not just going to be broad visions and conceptual ideas and uh, administrative categories and whatnot. Uh, we need to talk about Taiwan's uh, how it differs, uh, how it differs considerably from Korea and how this difference will affect the course of Japanese rule. Um, Briefly, you know, to give you a brief uh, preview, uh, we're going to see how Taiwan, generally speaking, will have a lack of a pre-existing strong cultural, political identity. um, And that ends up helping to facilitate what we might refer to as a more positive form of Japanese rule uh, versus Korea's very strong sense of a prior cultural and political identity, um, which will not facilitate a positive Japanese imperial experience. In fact, Korea will be one of the places that even though it's acquired very early on, and it's seen as part of the Naichi, the inner territories, um, it will be seen as a place that has constant resistance in the Koreans as a people, an incorrigible people who constantly need to be uh, brought to heel. Um, in order to tame them, uh, to get them to realize that we're all part of the same ancient family, damn it. Uh, Why don't you understand that? All right, so let's begin with Japan's new civilizing mission and where this idea that you have a civilizing mission comes from. The acquisition of Taiwan in 1895 is usually viewed as qualitatively different than the acquisition of Okinawa and, Hokka- and Hokkaido over the course of the 19th century. Those previous acquisitions had long historical ties to the home uh, to the three home Japanese islands. Okay, they were geographically immediately adjacent to the home three Japanese islands and they were not obtained through war. You cannot look to, to any textbook and find, you know, the War of Okinawa, <laughs> uh, the War of Hokkaido, and that's how we got this place. Okay, Taiwan, however, uh, does result from a formal declaration of war. Uh, it was more geographically distant. It's you know, it's beyond the Ryukyus, and the Ryukyus span for 700 miles. So when we say uh, beyond the Ryukyus, it's not like oh, it's just two islands over. It's pretty far down there uh, from the uh, uh, main Japanese home islands, um, and there's really no historical ties. Oh, yeah, there's, you know, some Japanese pirates and ships and fishermen and whatnot. They've been to Taiwan and all this, but uh, it's nothing like the ties, the close ties that you saw between uh, the daimyo of Satsuma and the Ryukyu kingdom, uh, or Matsumai, the, fam- the the Matsumai clan in, in uh, uh, Ezochi, uh, dealing with uh, Ainu tribes for hundreds of years. Um, you have nothing equivalent to that in Taiwan okay and then korea as well um is going to basically be acquired through war not as so directly not such a direct correlation as with Taiwan. Uh, Taiwan, you know, you win a war and Taiwan is given as, you know, the spoils of war. It's a one-to-one correlation. Uh, Korea uh, is also a a result of war, but a little more indirect as we talked about last time. Uh, The Japanese beat the Russians, um, kick them out of the sphere of influence in Korea, uh, establish a protectorate and then formally annex it after a few years when more troubles arise. So it's not quite the same one-to-one correlation, fight a war. Or win it get territory, but you can still say, yeah, Korea essentially is the result of the Japanese winning a war. All right. Um, and then also, uh, at least in the case of Taiwan, uh, Taiwan was wrested away from another major power. Uh, Another independent political state, um, the Qing Dynasty. It it, it was a colony of, not a colony. It was a province of the Qing of the Qing Dynasty. Mainland China ruled from Beijing when the Japanese actually took it. It was not an independent kingdom. Um, It was not uh, autonomous tribes. There are autonomous tribes on Taiwan, mostly in the mountains, um, but they are not sort of the political rulers of the entire island. All right, and many of them had already sort of been brought into the orbit of the Qing dynasty as well. Um, So Taiwan uh, will be taken directly from another state. Uh, You know, all these sort of things uh, contribute to the idea that this is the beginning of empire. This is the beginning of empire acquired through war, taken from another state. That's a colony. And then this gave rise to a feeling among many Japanese educated elites and especially those who had uh, a role in the government that with the acquisition of Taiwan, we are now officially a Western-style empire. We talked about this last time. We've joined the club. (laughs) We've joined this prestigious, small club of imperial powers um, that don't just have their own colonies and their own uh, inferior subjects. Um, We actually uh, rule them in a way that is in line with Western enlightened modern tactics. Uh, this would distinguish them, as we'll see in a minute, from uh, other empires. I mean, the Qing dynasty is actually still an empire. Uh, the Ottoman Empire in the Middle East is still, these, these, these empires still exist, but they will see be seen by the Japanese and the European and American empires as inferior forms of empire. And the Japanese elites are putting themselves uh, on at, at the top tier of imperial powers at this time. They're thinking of themselves as not a second-class imperial power, uh, but as a first-class imperial power right up there with the most powerful western ones and that all comes with the acquisition of Taiwan in 1895. Now, with this distinction came the fostering of an ideology that the Japanese too have a noble burden i read you a quote from the politician and journalist Takekoshi Yosabura who said, quote, after acquiring Taiwan, uh, Western nations have long believed that on their shoulders alone rested the responsibility of colonizing the yet unopened portions of the globe and extending to the inhabitants the benefits of civilization. But now we Japanese rising from the ocean in the extreme orient also take part in this great and glorious work. The language here you know uh, to the untrained historically untrained ear will be quite shocking because you realize that uh, empire is not not a dirty word at this point uh, it's, uh, it, it's it's a point of pride to be able to call yourself an empire um and you know you believe that the world is uh, uh divided up between civilized advanced people and uncivilized people who need to be brought into the light and uh, uh you know modernized um and cleansed of their dirty habits and their backward state of uh, their politics, and their economy, and their culture, and all these sort of things. And it's a noble burden. You almost see it as something, you know, I have this thing that I have to deal with, but, you know, okay, it's a noble task, so I'll take on this task. Um, And that task is to go out and civilize the rest of the world. So if you're going to be an enthusiastic proponent of empire, this is sort of the ideology um, that you're probably going to subscribe to in this particular time and place. Now, this prompts debate and discussion over which sort of colonial models to adopt. Only the most advanced Western empires are fit to instruct us as we create our Japanese empire. Taiwan, it was said, quote, can only be governed in accord with the example and precedence furnished by other colonial powers. But which colonial powers? Uh, the British and French empires were the empires that the Japanese elites admired the most, so they studied them the closest, they imagined them to be the most advanced and enlightened of all the Western empires and also the most successful, which by de facto logic makes them the most advanced, and so that's what we're going to study. Okay, so the Japanese professed faith in British and French French methods of colonial administration, what uh, what uh, uh, ideas sort of uh, invigorated uh, Western ideas of colonial administration? The idea that it was based on scientific research. That is how the distinguish uh, the distinction was made between who is a truly first-class colonial power and who's sort of a second-tier, old you know from the old era. Uh, these old type of empires uh, that still rule with uh, brutal, uh, backward methods of administration to their inferior subjects. Um, scientifically uh, uh, inspired colonial administration was seen as more rational and more efficient, and it distinguished us from these pre modern, so called feudal empires. And in this category, Usually the Ottoman Empire in the Middle East and the Chinese Empire, the Qing Dynasty, um, in East Asia, were usually uh, subsumed under this category as a pre-modern feudal empire that is destined to disappear. It's going to be carved up and swallowed up by the more enlightened advanced empires of the 20th century. Uh, The Ottomans and the Chinese were usually described by the British, the French, most European uh, imperial elites, and definitely now by the Japanese. Uh, They say these are non-scientific. These are feudal. They're irrational, and sometimes they would even go so far as to say they are these effeminate, oriental, despot type of empires. They don't base their rule on scientific data, scientific studies uh, to understand how best to rule the people. To take the resources from them and then reinvest those resources in a way that supposedly benefits everyone, both the imperial overlords and the subjects uh, who are now supposed to be sort of uh, modernized uh, in accord with the resources that are being extracted in a supposedly rational scientific way. And oftentimes, uh, Russia could go either way, depending on who's, uh, uh evaluate, who, who, who is making the judgment and what time and place, uh, the Russian empire often existed in this ambiguous gray area because it's an empire that sort of straddles both East and West. Um, it's in direct competition with East Asian empires for territory, uh, on its East Asian side. Um, but it would often be tarred with this Asian despot model, uh, Oriental despot model, um, in which, uh, usually the narrative would go that the Russians, uh, uh, their state was founded in the wake of Mongol conquest. That's where the state of, uh, of uh, Rus, uh, uh, the Muscovite state, uh, eventually sort of rose up out of the Mongol conquest uh, on the doorstep of Europe. And this sort of injected this Oriental despot aspect into the Russians uh, that often, you know, you still see this discourse today. The Russians will be tarred with, uh, you know, they're not quite European. There's still something uh, autocratic and a little bit barbarian, a little bit Asian. It's a very pejorative discourse, of course. Uh, but whenever it's Convenient. The Russians uh, will be subsumed within enlightened European empires and whenever it's convenient for them to be sort of put into the category of uh, pre-modern, not fully uh, uh, evolved sort of uh, modern scientific empire, then they'll be tarred with the brush of oriental despot and, you know, the Mongols and whatnot will sort of be brought in to say this is where they went wrong. At any rate, the Japanese see themselves um, on par with the most advanced, successful, and powerful of the Western empires, Britain and France. Now, in ruling its new colonies, the Japanese said, if we're going to be seen as a scientific empire, because that's the best thing in the world, right? You need to be a scientific empire or else you're illegitimate. Uh, The only legitimate empires are those that uh, base their rule on sound, rational scientific data. Um, So, you need to collect empirical data upon which to base specific policy formations that are unique to each colony. This is something, an ideology that had been going on in the British and French empires for about a hundred years already, in which they were saying, you know what, we need to get into our colonies and we need to get data, we need to, you know, take censuses, we need to map the land, we need to understand our subjects in a way that uh, states have never attempted to understand them before in unprecedented detail so that we can have a more efficient use of the resources uh, in our colony, and eventually gain a leg up on rival empires. So, that, so Taiwan would become the first setting for Japanese-style colonial investigative research organizations that were modeled after British and French uh, precedents. Uh, we refer to this maybe as scientific colonization. Okay? And for one of the first examples, uh, on, on Taiwan, you would have organizations such as the Commission for the Investigation of Traditional Customs in Taiwan. In which the Japanese are saying, we can't rule them if we don't know them. So we need to have, you know, we need to bring in our ethnologists, our scholars, our historians, Um, and they need to go into the field and they need to, you know, uh, 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 undertake a census, for all the villages in this province and based on the results of that census, we'll know what sort of tax rates that we can impose on them, how much agricultural yield that we can take from this province. Maybe we need to change the administrative boundaries that we inherited from the Qing dynasty because these boundaries are inefficient. Their method of rule was inefficient. We're going to change all that and our justification for changing all of that is that we have better scientifically collected and analyzed data. So, Taiwan in these early years Was often referred to as sort of a a, a, a colonial laboratory. And the top colonial government office was informally in Japanese circles referred to as a colonization university. All right, now where should Japan practice scientific colonization? First of all, it was only applicable to what we might think of or what were sometimes referred to as sovereign colonies. What are sovereign colonies this is a synonym for what was known as the naichi, the inner lands, the inner territories, as opposed to gaiichi, the outer territories. All right, the, the naichi, the inner territories, this meant Taiwan, eventually it means Taiwan, it means Korea, and it means Karafuto acquired after the war with with, uh, Russia in 1905. That's the southern half of Sahalin Island, just to the north of Hokkaido. Uh, These three territories were known as the Naichi colonies. Together, they comprise about four-fifths the size of the uh, four Japanese home islands. Uh, So basically, by 1905, or if you want to take the formal annexation of Korea, 1910, the three new major colonies that Japan has acquired, uh, beyond Hokkaido and beyond Ryukyu, they basically have duplicated, Uh, they have doubled the size of Japan, almost, all right? Now, these three Naichi colonies, Taiwan, Korea, and Karafuto, were managed on the following three assumptions. The first is that uh, it is desirable to eventually fully integrate these three colonies into the Japanese polity, both culturally and politically. Maybe not immediately, there might be a transition period, and I'm not trying to say everyone subscribed to this, I think actually famously the very first governor general of Taiwan uh, did not think this was a desirable thing. But eventually after the first 10 years or so, this is the ideology that emerges, uh, that the Naichi colonies, the earliest acquired colonies, should eventually be fully integrated into the Japanese polity, culturally meaning we should assimilate them. Uh, Assimilation mean, you know, to become Japanese, speak Japanese, uh, you know, uh, adopt Japanese ways. Um, And then politically, which means that eventually, not only are, you know, it's not just politically, oh, they're a part of the Japanese empire, because that's already done. Once you have them, they're they're politically integrated in that sense. Politically, we mean, they'll have the same uh, administrative system, and rights and responsibilities that uh, prefectures in the Japanese home islands have. This means eventually that Taiwan, Korea and Karafuto are supposed to have representative powers. Um, That's a long ways off. It's not going to be until the 1930s, uh, right, you know, the eve of war uh, with the rest of the world that finally they're going to say, you know what, Taiwan, Korea, Karafuto, you guys are going to be completely integrated politically and they'll actually get seats in the Japanese parliament. but even in the early days, this is something that is seen as an eventual desirable outcome that we want to have uh, for the Naichi um, territories. Second, Japan, Japanese educated elites who went to these uh, colonies, the settlers, the uh, military, the diplomats, they were taught to believe that they had a civilizing and modernizing mission in these places. We need to overhaul the educational system, public health, Uh, Economic development. Okay? Um, Anything that we deem is uh, culturally backward, we will ban. And we will do our best to root it out uh, in Taiwan. This will include things like the he- practice of headhunting among the Aboriginal peoples, uh, the people of Polynesian, sort of who are more closely related to Polynesians than they are to the uh, Chinese world. Uh, the indigenous peoples who mostly lived in the mountains by this point—they've been driven out of the lower plains. Uh, headhunting, the Japanese. So this is barbaric. Uh, this isn't uh, uh, something that is. Um, suitable for a modern state, uh, so we're going to ban that. Uh, Foot binding among the Chinese population. They said, no, 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 that's a backward thing from the old feudal era. We're going to get rid of that as well. Uh, Stuff like that. All right. Uh, Public hygiene. We we often think of the term uh, hygienic modernity. Is a phrase that scholars often like to use. Most of these uh, uh, first tier empires would often uh, uh, judge how advanced and how successful they had been in their colonies by uh, talking about how much they had had been able to bring about uh, hygienic modernity to these places. Which basically means you guys aren't so filthy anymore. Uh, we have facilities, uh, sewer facilities, so you don't have open excrement and you know urine uh, festering on streets in hot, humid summer. Uh, paved roads. Uh, you know, encouragement, public education that, that that tells people to take baths more often, uh, wash your hands, uh, eat food in certain ways that's supposed to be better for you. Um, you know, we're gonna uh, e- e- economic development. where we're going to restructure agriculture and the crops you plant, and how much we take away, and where we reinvest it, because now you're part of a different empire. All right? You're no longer oriented towards the mainland, uh, if you're in the case of Taiwan. Uh, you're going to be oriented for our economy, and you're going to grow and export what we think is useful for our empire, not for what Beijing once thought was useful. Okay, And then finally, like I said, full integration into the Kokutai. Remember the Kokutai, the national polity. Ideology of the Japanese Empire. Um, this means not only you're going to be culturally and politically assimilated, but also you eventually are going to be subsumed almost, you know, racially into the family of the Emperor's Descent Club. Remember that divine emperor. Uh, there were various ways of thinking about, in the Yamato race episode where we talked about racial ideologies. Um, some people would insist, "Oh no, it's just a blood relationship," and uh, you know uh, the, that that includes that defines the Japanese family and it's nothing beyond that and then there are many people and these people were more influential and they're the ones who held the organs of public education um, who said no 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 no. it needs to be more flexible Uh, we'll never be able to run an empire on this exclusivist uh, narrow conception of the Japanese race Uh, the Japanese race is a Mongol race we always have been and we have always had a knack we've had a knack a propensity we're really good at integrating other people into our family and it doesn't always have to be by blood it can be by marriage, it can be by adoption, uh, and you can all become a member of this exclusive Japanese club where you are uh, a, a, a an honorary member of the emperor's divine family. Um, and that doesn't get applied to everyone, uh, but certainly Taiwan, Korea, and Karafuto, these are the places where this idea will be uh, attempted to be implemented most vigorously. All right? Now these assumptions, these three assumptions that I'm talking about, uh, oftentimes did not always apply to the Gaichi colonies, the outer territory colonies, which include Kwantung. We talked about Kwantung last time, which is essentially uh, Japan, the Japanese economic uh, sphere of influence in Manchuria uh, in and uh, the Liaodong Peninsula in northeastern China. All right, that'll eventually become Manchukuo when they set up an independent state, uh, puppet state there in 1932. Uh, these assumptions don't apply to there. Uh, the South Seas, which I believe is our uh, topic for our next episode, um, uh, that's essentially Micronesia, which they're going to get during World War One when they take it over from the Germans. Uh, China during the wartime era, um, when you have the Second Sino-Japanese War and they actually invade the uh, uh, Chinese heartland, and they take over big chunks of territory and cities that also will be seen as uh, outside of the Naichi uh, guiding vision for how the colonies should be governed. Um, And then finally, the parts of Southeast Asia that they take over as well, when they invade the Philippines, when they invade uh, Hong Kong, um, when they uh, uh, invade Burma, when they're in Indonesia, Uh, all of these places uh, will be seen as uh, Gaichi. Uh, They're the outer territories, different assumptions apply to them. We we, we are not slating them for full assimilation and integration into uh, the the Japanese home islands in the same way that we are Taiwan, Korea, and Karafuto. All right. Now, I always want to put this this footnote in here, this caveat. These are these are things that historians find in the archives, uh, public pronouncements that we see. This constitutes the general discourse. All right, of how the Japanese uh, a- approached their different imperial territories in different ways. Um, but don't make the mistake of thinking that these are hard and fast rules that were rigidly applied everywhere in all times and places. Contradictions abound. Sometimes you will find the discourse of full integration and becoming a member of the Yamato family um, in the Gaichi territories. OK, uh, there's lots of people of Japanese going out into the colonies with lots of different agendas, lots of different class backgrounds, educational backgrounds. Some of them are imbibing the official message. Some of them are not. Some of them are imbibing it, but then changing it themselves uh, to suit their own pre-existing biases or beliefs or whatnot. Um, and even, you know, in Korea and Taiwan, certain circumstances uh, will lead people to act in a way that says, no, you're not a member of our family. How could we possibly be, be the same as you? and we're far superior to you. Uh, so, take these as general guidelines, general guidelines. Alright, and if you ever want to understand what's actually going on in the ground, you have to go and do an in-depth historical study at this particular time and place to understand how discourse uh, merged with reality and was altered as a result of reality, but I'm giving you the guiding vision. Now, because these things could uh, uh, be different in different places in time, and it is just a guiding vision, I also like to have some other metrics here, some other means of assessing the uh, degree of integration that various colonies were imagined to have with Japan. And one way we can think about this is which colonies are going to get the appointment of a governor general appointed to them? All right, A governor general is basically an autocratic, usually a military man, uh, very high rank, who is sent into the province, and he doesn't get a whole lot of external influence in what he does. You know, he's, he, he has autocratic authority to pretty much rule that province the way he wants, unless there's a major uprising, and then Tokyo is going to come knocking. Okay, uh, It's a fairly strong-arm tactic to make sure that peace is maintained in these colonies. So, another way of thinking about this In other words, in what colonial lands is the Japanese constitution superseded by a delegated form of autocratic authority that is not applied to Japanese subjects living at home, at least not most of the time? The answer, Taiwan, Korea, Kwantung, and the South Seas. See here, the, the way of this is why I said you got sort of a, a Venn diagram, which some things overlap and some things don't. Karafuto uh, is not on this list, and then the South Seas is on this list, the Kwantung is on this list, despite them being seen as Gaichi, not Naichi. Uh, so, depending on whose perspective we're looking at, uh, the way of looking at the empire can be very, very different. All right, Karafuto. Uh, Oftentimes, it's not really seen as geopolitically all that strategic most of the time. And it's just some Japanese poor settlers who are going there and making a humble living. So, they said, you know what? We don't need this to be sort of uh, 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 ruled in accordance with an entire uh, governor general. That's too grand for a place like uh, Karafuto. And so, they said, you know what? With Karafuto, we're just going to use the same judicial and legislative type of regulations and administrative boundaries that we already have on the home islands. It's not quite a colony in the sense that these other places are. Governor generals were powerful and influential men. They would be most powerful and autonomous in Korea, Taiwan, and Kwantung. They are appointed directly by the emperor after his deliberation with top officials. Little oversight. They're rarely checked or recalled by Tokyo. Usually, they are an army general or a navy admiral and thus that allows them to concurrently serve as a head of the military forces that are stationed there. Uh, at you know, the drop of a pin, if there's some violence, if there's some heads that need cracking among the natives, uh, the governor general can immediately don his military hat um, and give up his civil administrative duties, and he can lead the armies to suppress anything as he sees fit in the moment. All right, They have substantial leeway to conduct military operations without cooperation or even oversight from Tokyo. All right, they would often say, uh, I had to strike first and ask your permission later because these uh, backward colonial subjects only understand force. And we can't appear to be reticent. We can't appear to be cowards and hesitant or they'll take advantage of that. This attitude would be in most, uh, most often in evidence in Kwantung, in northeastern China. Uh, It's the army in northeastern China that will continually manufacture incidents, pick fights with local Chinese forces as a means of having a pretext to then uh, go all out and attack the Chinese and take over more territory. That's going to happen several times. All right, it's a classic expression of this ideology um, in which, you know, we say, you don't understand the the threats back there in Tokyo. Uh, Here on the front lines, uh, it's very messy, it's very dangerous. If you want us to keep this lucrative colony and keep order here and eventually try to civilize these people, uh, we need to shoot first and ask questions later. Okay, Um, and you can always find a way to justify the violence that you felt you needed to resort to. And then finally, where do you allow the natives to carry guns? When, are you, when and where are you going to uh, be comfortable integrating them into your police force, your local police force, or heaven forbid, the official imperial Japanese military? And not surprisingly, uh, this was very rare in all of the colonies. In fact, as we'll find out, uh, as far as the military goes, Japan will only feel comfortable integrating uh, Taiwanese and Koreans into the uh, Imperial Japanese military uh, after World War II has already begun. Um, and then they'll decide, you know, so many Japanese men are going off to the front lines and dying. We need. We, we don't have enough manpower. And they'll say, okay, we'll go back to our earliest colonies and use the Taiwanese and the Koreans. Uh, more on that, you know, 10 episodes down the road when we actually get to World War II. Um, Okinawans, although, you know, sort of to back up a little bit here... Um, the most recently integrated and the, uh, of the colonies before formal imperial colonies in 1895, uh, they will be integrated into local police forces. Um, and Okinawans will be integrated into the Japanese military. So, you know, I, I, I just want to give you some sort of a standard from which you can judge uh, the significance of this metric as a way of distinguishing different parts of the empire. Uh, the Japanese will not feel comfortable putting guns in the hands of pretty much any of their colonial peoples until relatively late, all right? Now, police forces, that's something that is different in each time and place. I actually haven't seen a whole lot of research on at what point exactly locals are integrated into the police force, Um, but as far as the military goes, that's going to be very, very late. And I know in places like Korea, uh, it would be very rare uh, that local Koreans would be uh, integrated into the police force. But I think we probably need a little bit more research on that to really understand when and where uh, the Japanese felt comfortable with uh, domestic police force uh, security keeping. Um, but certainly, as far as the military goes, that was something that was monopolized by the Japanese well into the colonial era. All right, um, let's get into some of the details now of Taiwan and Korea. In Taiwan, Uh, How are these two places going to be different? The two earliest colonies, and yet they're going to have radically different responses to the Japanese approach to how they're going to rule their two earliest Naichi colonies, both slated for full integration eventually. Um, In Taiwan, Japan was merely the latest in a long string of outside rulers. All right, this matters. Uh, Taiwan did not have some sort of uh, distinct, coherent, strongly coalesced sense of self, of a distinct self um, that immediately preceded the Japanese arrival. This is going to make it easier for the Japanese to come in and displace the, you know, sort of the upper crust of whoever was in power and then try to overhaul uh, the ideology, the educational system of the island because there hasn't been a major entrenched prior ideology or educational system before the Japanese came in. All right, if you look, go back far enough, Taiwan is is, is is an island populated by the people who eventually would be known as the aborigines of, uh, that, that's actually where the Polynesian migration into Oceania uh, is thought now to have begun, uh, began in Taiwan. And the people who are now known as aborigines, uh, Yuan Ming in Chinese, they are uh, linguistically and culturally connected to the Polynesians. Uh, originally, the whole island was theirs, <laughs> right? Uh, we don't know how long they've even been there. Um Then eventually, in the 1600s, the Dutch come. Uh, yes, that's right. The Dutch uh, and the Dutch actually are sort of the first major outside organized political power to impose themselves on Taiwan. Uh, they have some forts mainly in the southwestern part of the island to uh, sort of support the activities of the, du- of the Dutch East India uh, Dutch East Indies Company, uh, which is mainly uh, has its interest in what is now known as Indonesia, the islands of Indonesia, um, and then also in the sixteenth century is a very seventeenth tr- uh, century is a very turbulent century. Also in the sixteen hundreds, uh, when the Ming Dynasty on the Chinese mainland is defeated, and they flee south. Some of the loyalist forces flee south. Uh, Taiwan will get drawn in uh, to this civil war because, sort of, this uh, maritime empire of the Zheng family, uh, Zheng Chenggong, was sort of uh, uh, sort of this uh, pirate. Uh, come statesman, whose mother, I believe, was Japanese and his father was Chinese. Um, he'll eventually take refuge um, on uh, Taiwan, kick out the Dutch. And when the uh, Qing dynasty, the Manchus, displace the Ming dynasty and Ming loyalists flee to the south, uh, Zheng Chenggong will decide to take the side of the Ming uh, loyalists and he'll fight the Qing dynasty. And that then will lead the Qing dynasty uh, to uh, invade Taiwan. And destroy and uh, well integrate. They win some battles and then eventually have a negotiated settlement with the heirs of the Zheng family on Taiwan. um, And then they integrate Taiwan. But the Qing dynasty didn't really want Taiwan. It was sort of something that they took reluctantly in order to neutralize a threat in the transition of one empire to another. This is an ally of our defeated uh, enemy, so we have to then neutralize the, this ally as well. Um, and so they didn't really have a proactive policy in Taiwan uh, by the late 1600s. Taiwan is be- loosely affiliated with the Qing Empire, um, and settlers from Fujian Province, right across from the Taiwan Strait, begin to migrate in ever greater numbers, and they mostly settle on the lower western plains of Taiwan and leave the and sort of move the uh, kick the aborigines gradually into the midlands and the highlands, uh, and then in the Western uh, lowlands, they'll have intensive rice agriculture. Okay, Um, but the Qing uh, thought that Taiwan was actually pretty troublesome, and uh, they only got involved more and sent more officials there when the new settlers from Fujian kept on uh, um, getting involved in disputes and battles and violence with the aborigines that they were displacing. And then eventually, as we talked about in our episode on Hokkaido and uh, the Ryukius, it was in the 1870s that they finally realized we need to integrate Taiwan more closely into our empire or else the Japanese are going to find a pretext to take it. When you had that incident where Ryukian sailors shipwrecked on there, were killed by aborigines, and the Japanese then tried to get an indemnity from the Qing, this leads the Qing to finally integrate Taiwan as a full-fledged province, just like all the other provinces on the inner heartland of the East uh, Continental mainland. Um, so Taiwan finally becomes an integral part, uh, an, administ- an administratively integral part of the Qing Empire, in which civil service exam graduates are being sent as magistrates to govern the island. Um, in 1885, so it only had ten years of what we might think of as uh, ground-level, intense micromanagement from a power based in the East Asian mainland. All right. So there's no tradition of a densely settled independent state with a distinct cultural identity. All previous sort of autonomous actors who had uh, taken over Taiwan and tried to say, this is mine. I'm based here. This is my land. You know, the Dutch, uh Gong, and then the Qing after they turn into a province. They don't last more than 50 years. In some cases, not more than a decade. Okay, so when Japan comes, they're aware of this. There's a very uh, flimsy basis for a uh, uh, indigenous political organized identity prior to the arrival of the Japanese in 1895. And the Japanese actually make a very smart move when they come. They try to further dilute any sort of resistant sentiments on Taiwan by say by uh, proclaiming that all residents have two years to leave the island if you so wish. If you can't reconcile yourself to Japanese rule, if you, you know, for, if for the few people who are diehard Qing dynasty loyalists, um, and you look down upon the Japanese, perhaps, uh, you're free to leave. You don't have to stay. <laughs> you are free to go. And presumably, uh, this meant that, you know, the diehards, the people who would be uh, most difficult to reconcile themselves to Japanese rule, they left, or at least most of them would. Reportedly, about one-fourth of the Han population uh, left the island, uh, went back to the mainland. The most educated, the most wealthy, uh, those who would identify most closely with uh, the the Qing dynasty. They're gone. So, the Japanese, when they get there, not only is there not a pre-existing strong sense of a political identity that would oppose the imposition of Japanese rule, uh, what little there was, uh, most of those people actually left. And then, when Japan gets there, they will make a concerted attempt to demarginalize the idea of China as a relevant cultural identity on Taiwan. Um, they will rarely talk about China all right, in their publications. They won't really use the words China or Chinese except to discuss geographical separation by water. Uh, China is over there. That's a different place across the water that we're not connected to. Um, Or they would have pejorative connotations uh, with backward China uh, as opposed to the advanced Japanese empire. And aren't you lucky to be ruled by the Japanese and not the sick man of Asia, uh, the uh, Chinese? And and the Japanese would come up with a word that was very similar to the word Chinaman. Uh, Chinamen in English, which was a pejorative word when it was used. Uh, Chinamen are like this, Chinamen are dirty, Chinamen, you know, whatever. Um, and the Japanese had Shinajin. Uh, it, it was the exact same thing. And it was used in the same pejorative sense as well. Alright, the Japanese will do this elsewhere also. Uh, whenever they take over territory that was previously uh, explicitly owned, or controlled by mainland China. Uh, they'll do this in Manchukuo as well, in Manchuria. When they take it over and formally set up the puppet state of Manchukuo in the 1930s, they will rarely talk about China or the Chinese. Um, and even though they have a lot of Chinese subjects, culturally Chinese subjects in Manchukuo, um, you know, they will not try to uh, further um, encourage that identity. And they'll come up with new terms, new ways of thinking about who you are, And they'll try to get them to to, uh, subscribe to the idea that you guys are all Manchurian. You are Manchus, Uh, not ethnic racial Manchus, but sort of a, a civic Manchurian identity. Um, And if they had won World War II or not lost, uh, you know, unconditional surrender and had been able to keep Manchukuo, they might have been able to naturalize that identity. Uh, The Russians certainly were able to naturalize a a huge dose of Russian culture and Russian identity um, and political communist uh, uh, ideology in Mongolia. Um, And most people don't think that was uh, too ridiculous, uh, that Mongols had this strong Russian component. Uh, because Russia never lost the war. Uh, so they got to keep their satellite states and uh, naturalize their ideologies there. Uh, Japan lost their war and so their colonies uh, did not become naturalized. Um, and especially the shorter lived ones like Manchukuo. Um, so the Japanese get to Taiwan and they find that although there's some resistance, uh, it's, uh, there, are, there is no real sustained or you know uh, very threatening resistance. Or even credible political al- alternatives. This allows Japan to reform and modernize Taiwan far more than all of its other colonies. Alright, just something to keep in mind. Uh, Taiwan, generally today, um, the, nas- the, the uh, historical memory of Japanese rule is, uh, you'd have to say it's the most positive of all the former Japanese colonies. Today, you go throughout most of Asia, anywhere the Japanese once set foot during the 50 years of empire, uh, they tend to be reviled. Okay. There's this love-hate relationship. There's always this admiration for what Japan was able to do. The only non-Western power to sort of enter the Western club of imperial powers and beat the Westerners at their own game. Uh, and there's a sense of pride in that. They're, they're much more like us than the white people are. And they were able to do this. It shows that it's possible for us to do this. Um, but Japanese rule and so many of the other colonies other than Taiwan. Was often experienced on the ground as so rapacious and so haughty and arrogant um, and dismissive of the locals that uh, they are not fondly remembered pretty much anywhere in Asia. I remember quite vividly. I think I mentioned this in an earlier podcast on the China episodes, modern Chinese history episodes. But some of you are only listening to this, so I'll say it again. I had a uh, diplomat from the Taiwanese consulate in D.C. come to one of my classes and uh, uh, you know just talk generally about Taiwan's place in the world today, political relations with the rest of Asia. And he made this comment. Uh, that always stuck in my mind. It was hilarious at the time, which he basically said, "You know what? Taiwan's got a pretty good relationship with Japan. We're pretty uh, because we're the only country in Asia that doesn't hate them." <laughs> he says, "You know, and the Japanese know this. They can't formally acknowledge our love for Japan uh, because you know Taiwan doesn't officially exist." Um, But informally, you know, uh, the prime minister's wife will come visit uh, uh, Taiwan, Japanese travelers love to come to Taiwan, and there is this, uh, uh, you know, sub-level of uh, affection between the two places. Now, certainly there's a bit of historical amnesia there, Uh, there's always historical amnesia, I'm not trying to say atrocities didn't occur on Taiwan, there was no resistance, because there was. Uh, But relatively speaking, with the other colonies uh, that that Japan had, uh, Taiwan has the, the, the fewest of this. Okay, Um, and I see this, you know, I go to Taiwan all the time for research, for family and whatnot, and uh, you rarely hear negative things about Japanese rule. Usually it's quite admiring uh, the Japanese in general, Uh, far more than China. Trust me, I've heard a lot of shit spoken about China uh, when 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 I'm in uh, Taiwan. Uh, You don't hear that stuff as much talked about the Japanese. Japanese rule is remembered generally fondly in Japan, and that's unique in Asia. There's almost no other place in in Asia where uh, the people remember Japanese rule fondly. Taiwan is one of them, okay? Um, Now, so why? Well, from 1895 to 1904, the Japanese immediately undertake a land survey of all the agricultural regions in Taiwan. Uh, They invest uh, heavily in agriculture and raise the annual crop yield significantly, uh, which means that even though Japan is going to take far more of the agricultural crop from Taiwan than the Qing Dynasty ever did. Remember, this is scientific colonization. You're going to extract a lot more, but because you're going to take so much more, you have already undertaken the modern scientific surveys and learn from the advanced British and French how best to uh, be an efficient manager of your resources, not an inefficient old feudal oriental despot uh, uh, empire. Even though Japan will take far more from Taiwan than the Qing Dynasty ever did, crop yield uh, the crop yield every year will increase so much that there's never starvation on, on Taiwan. In fact, the people in Taiwan for the whole entirety of the 50 years of the Japanese empire uh, will be quite well fed. All right, Japan will take half of all the rice yield every year in Taiwan and all of the sugar grown on Taiwan. But Taiwan will still be better fed than anywhere on the Chinese mainland throughout the entire 50 years of the Japanese empire. All right. And that's saying something, because life on the Chinese mainland, if you're not a wealthy elite, and sometimes even if you are a wealthy elite, but for most of the Chinese population, the first 50 years, hell, the first 70 years of the 20th century is pure living hell. Okay, Taiwan, by this random stroke of history, will be spared most of the misery that's going to occur on the mainland. Okay, Japan essentially, this isn't like intentional, but inadvertently, Japan taking over Taiwan will shield Taiwan from all the horrible misery that's going to afflict a vast majority of the population on the mainland. By 1904, Taiwan is fiscally self-sufficient. It's producing an economic surplus that allows for capital accumulation and then reinvestment into modernization campaigns. And initiatives for the next three decades, Japan will oversee the construction of over a thousand miles of railroads in Taiwan. The first automobile-paved roads, modern seaports, urban infrastructure, new hygiene initiatives, sewer systems, irrigation projects—all right, these are huge achievements that cost a lot of money, and the Japanese in Taiwan can afford to make these investments. You go to Taiwan today and most of the big government buildings, a lot of them, uh, were originally constructed by the Japanese. Uh, The railway stations were originally constructed by the Japanese. They've been renovated, of course. Uh, Important railway lines uh, built on top of a Japanese uh, railway foundation. In fact, this is going to be true for much of Asia that Japan ends up taking over eventually. But it's more true of Taiwan than any other because they have Taiwan for the longest. And it's the most peaceful colony. Uh, It's the most successful colony overall. Um, And so you will see more of a Japanese blueprint. There's a Japanese blueprint for almost all modernization initiatives throughout much of Asia. uh, More so in Taiwan than anywhere else. So from 1900, after the initial, uh, there is some resistance in the first years. After that's put down, from 1900 to 1945, Taiwan will experience no famines, I think virtually no wars, I think there might be one limited engagement during World War II that hits uh, the coast of Taiwan, but uh, you know it's not much, um, and generally peaceful, continuous peaceful development. The population will increase from 2.5 million people to 6 million people. Um, This includes about 228,000 Japanese settlers, diplomats, officials, families that have moved there, uh, representing about 5% of the population. Uh, Japan will also establish Japanese-oriented education. Okay, there are no more entrenched literate elites who are oriented towards another cultural center abroad. Uh, They left in 1895 to 1897, most of them. Okay, most Taiwanese. Most of the Han settlers who trace their descent back to Fujian province, that's the bulk of the population. Okay? Most of them are illiterate. They're poor agricultural and unskilled labor who spoke Taiwanese, a southern Chinese language that was mutually unintelligible with languages on the, on the Chinese mainland. All right. It doesn't have its own written script, uh, but it's a mutually unintelligible language. Just don't, 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 anyone, don't let anyone tell you that Taiwanese is a dialect of Chinese. Uh, dialect implies that it's very close and perhaps can be even understood. No, most of mainland China cannot understand Taiwanese All right, at all. And most of these people who lived on Taiwan had a very parochial identity where if it went beyond the island itself at all, it only extended to neighboring Fujian province across the ocean, but probably not even that. Those ties had been lost 100, 200 years before during the initial wave of migration from Fujian. Okay? So, think of it this way. For most of the people living on Taiwan, you don't have a massive population. All right, Two million people for your entire island. That's not very big. Alright? Whether your new overlords are Chinese or Japanese, it's kind of all the same to you, all right? The number of people who are like, actively involved, well-off, educated Confucian elites reading classical Chinese text and loyal to the Qing dynasty, that's a minuscule proportion of the, of the people who have wealth and power on Japan after 1897, Okay. By 1918, 15% of the children in, ta- in Taiwan are attending Japanese schools. Seems like a small number, but when you're starting from a base of probably, you know, less than 5%, because uh, most people are, are not going to school. It's a poor agricultural island. Most people, are, kids are working in the fields and supporting the family business. Uh, 15% of all children on, on Taiwan are attending Japanese schools uh, within 20 years of the Japanese setting up shop there. They're learning the Japanese language. They're learning Japanese civic ideals. They're bowing in the direction of Tokyo every Monday. Alright, and one of the most important things here is they're learning Japanese in school. You want to learn Chinese? Uh, sometimes you'll have the option to learn Chinese alongside Japanese, but Japanese is the most important. Um, and if you have well, if you have money, your family can send you to a privately run Confucian school. But that's expensive. Uh, you want to have free education? You're going to be learning Japanese, okay? And you, if you're, if you want to move up in the world, you know, make something of yourself professionally, um, you know, get a job in the government, uh, run a successful business that's going to require constant interfacing with the government, you know, permits and paperwork and, uh, you know, business ties with influential people who are going to, you know, investors, this sort of thing. You need to learn Japanese. All new professional opportunities require you to know Japanese. And so, you're thinking, well, that's okay, because most of us only speak Taiwanese anyways, and we don't have a script for Taiwanese, okay? Um, So, whether we learn Chinese or Japanese, it's learning a a foreign language, right? That's an important thing most people don't realize. For Taiwanese in this day and age to be learning Mandarin Chinese, that is a foreign language to them. They have to learn it as a second language. So, Japanese is also a second language that you have to learn. Um, And now they're in charge they hold all the purse strings, you learn this. All right, I've told the story in previous uh, you know podcast episodes. My wife's grandparents, uh, they grew up in the 20s and 30s. They're still alive today, a couple of them. Um, and they learned Japanese. Of course, they spoke Taiwanese at home. Um, and they learned Japanese uh, growing up. If they went to school, Japanese was what you learned. Um, you know, and it's been 50, 60 years when I first met them. It was already 50, 60 years since the end of the empire. Uh, obviously, their Japanese wasn't you know, very good anymore. Uh, but they, they were told us, you know, when I was young, I read Japanese newspapers and I learned Japanese in school and they did not learn Chinese. I could barely communicate with them. The vast majority of my communication with my uh, with, with with my wife's grandparents is through her because she speaks Taiwanese. Um, and that's the way we had the talk. Um, uh, now over the years, the last decade or you know, two decades since I've known them, uh, they actually have learned a little more Mandarin Chinese, uh, enough so they can ask me how much money I make every single month. Uh, you know, are you taking care of our uh, granddaughter? I want to make sure it's the first question you're going to get whenever you learn Chinese, you get very, uh, disillusioned. You think, oh, I finally can communicate with people who live in this country. Uh, we're going to have mind blowing conversations. And you find out the first question is how much money do you make? <laughs> All right. Anyways, Um, now I'm not saying everything's all rosy here. Okay, there is a professional glass ceiling in Taiwan under Japanese rule. Taiwanese, the Japanese education is uh, designed to raise local Taiwanese who will work in the service industry or for technical training. All right. The only higher education you can get that will lead to like a white collar career is medicine and teaching. That's it. You're very unlikely to become an engineer who consults for the government or an official who works for, you know, the central government in, uh, in uh, tai- uh, Taipei. Alright? Um, and you're very unlikely to leave the island. Most of your opportunities, at least in the early years, the first half of the, of, of the 50-year Japanese empire here, um, all those opportunities are going to be in Taiwan. And when you get to a certain level, you're going to realize that even if your Japanese is excellent, all the best jobs, all the lucrative jobs, all the most uh, well-paying jobs uh, are reserved for Japanese settlers. Are reserved for the Japanese colonists. All right, so there's absolutely a glass ceiling in Taiwan. Okay, um, this will change eventually. This will change after 1919 when there's an uprising in Korea, a big uprising that we'll talk about in a minute. Um, The Japanese will start thinking, okay, now it's time to start uh, fully integrating our earliest Naichi colonies uh, and giving them all the educational opportunities and new professional advancement opportunities as well. And after 1919, uh, the Taiwanese are able to start studying the same subjects as the Japanese. You want to work in the government one day, you want to be an engineer, uh, whatever. Uh, Now you can compete with Japanese. They'll still be at a disadvantage, of course, because the Japanese are using their first language and the Taiwanese are using their second language. But at least the opportunity is available after 1919 that you can compete directly with Japanese and get some of the top jobs on the island. All right. Even if in practice, that's not going to happen that much. Um, So, Japanese in Taiwan will dominate white-collar jobs, all right? They'll have most of the literate management positions and they'll monopolize higher government and the military, at least in the first half of the empire. Um, So, the result is that you get a two-tier educational track in the Naichi colonies um, that perpetuates the dominance of settlers from Japan and will uh, mostly confine Taiwanese to local jobs, all right? The problem... With the Japanese-oriented education, however, whether it's full integration or half integration, is that you cultivate the locals to subscribe to Japanese culture, to believe uh, in you know having political loyalty to the Japanese Empire, and you stimulate ideas of equality among them. You know, uh, after a while, you're going to get a group of people who have grown up and they think, you know, I'm pretty much Japanese. I speak Japanese I, when I uh, make money and I, you know, I dress Japanese. I live in a Japanese style house when I've made it big. Um, I read Japanese newspapers. Um, in what sense am I not Japanese then? And you'll get an agitation in the 1920s for democratic representation in the parliament in Tokyo. Uh, agitation for home rule. We should you know why should it be exclusively Japanese ruling us uh we're we are Japanese now we should be able to rule ourselves to a certain degree all right that's home rule we should have job opportunities in Japan you know give us more freedom to to get, get scholarships um, and work in Japan or go to other parts of the empire and this will happen eventually okay the you know, all all empires deal with this issue the british dealt, you know had had to deal with it the French did you all have to deal with it is that any attempt to acculturate, uh, not assimilate, uh, but acculturate the natives to the, clo- the colonist culture will inevitably stimulate the a desire among those people to say, we're, we're your equally, you know we're equivalent to you now. We're just as good as you are. because I've been educated just the same as you are. And I've read about your philosophers and your books and your writers um, who criticize you guys from within and criticize colonial rule, and I feel I'm just as competent as you are now. I'm not in any way different, except for some superficial biological differences. Um, And then these calls will oftentimes be partially heeded, partially uh, accepted and listened to um, by colonial officials, and they'll say, yeah, we should uh, create a plan to gradually integrate the locals. And then once you do that, once you give them the measure of home rule, once you give them political representation, uh, once you increase the professional advancement opportunities, uh, you will get sort of a snowball that says, well, why are we a part of your empire at all? Shouldn't we just be fully independent sort of mini-me clones of your empire? Uh, you know, Japanese cultural and political influence, but why do we have to actually be under your rule anymore? Um, and then the empire starts to, fra- to, uh, to a fragment in that sense. You see a similar process underway, uh, especially in Taiwan uh, by the 1920s. Okay. Now, let's move on to Korea. Now, Korea, we're not going to talk as long about because the same basic model that was applied in Taiwan was uh, uh, there was an attempt to apply that same basic model in uh, Korea as well. But from the get-go, Japanese rule in Korea is going to be bedeviled by a fierce legacy of independence. Okay. Like Taiwan, most modernization initiatives in Korea evince a clear Japanese influence or blueprint dating back to the late 19th century, in fact. Okay, when the Japanese were getting involved with loans to the Korean government and trying to get the right to build railroads and this and that in Korea. All right, and this only intensifies when the Japanese actually take over Korea formally in 1905. All right, scratch the surface of an airport or a railroad or something like that, and you'll find out that the Japanese probably were the first uh, to have built that sucker uh, 100 years ago or so all right? Transportation and urban infrastructure, sewers, hygienic modernity, roads, railways, these sorts of things. Um, And you also get the same two-tier educational track separating the rulers from the ruled. However, everything Japan tries to do in Korea is going to be undermined by constant resistance, sometimes armed uprisings that result in considerable bloodshed. We might say that by the end of the Japanese Empire, Taiwan was in fact well on its way to becoming Japanese, (laughs) to becoming the next Hokkaido. All right, Korea, not so much. You can't make that claim for Korea even after the end of the empire in 1945. First, Korea is much more crowded. It's not a uh, largely sparsely settled Frontier like Taiwan. I mean, Taiwan had some dense communities, uh, but it was only on the western side of the island There's still a lot of places in Taiwan where you can try to reclaim land that has not been used for agricultural purposes before Uh, There was room to grow in Taiwan Okay Uh, In Korea As opposed to about remember 2 million people in Taiwan at the beginning of the Japanese Empire There's 20 million Koreans, 10 times as much And the Japanese are greater as well. There's 500,000 Japanese instead of, what was it, 228,000. So, there's twice as many Japanese in Korea as there are in Taiwan. But there are 10 times as many uh, 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 non-Japanese in Korea. So, the Korean population is 10 times larger than Taiwan's non-Japanese population. Um, Furthermore... Not only are you outnumbered more, not only are the Japanese a much smaller percentage of the overall population in Korea. Um, but in um, Korea, all right, in Korea, Japanese professionals will replace native professional elites. Think of the difference here. In Taiwan, Japanese professionals uh, replaced Qing outsiders. They replaced outsiders from the Qing Dynasty who, who who left when you when they lost the island. All right, and then the Japanese just sort of filled that vacuum. All right? Here were the old white collar professionals uh, in the economy, in business, in government, in military. They're all gone now, and we're just stepping into their you know the shoes that they vacated. In Korea, Japan is replacing native elites. That's a big difference. Furthermore, these Native Korean elites had been long accustomed to thinking of their land as more or less independent since ancient times. Not like in Taiwan, uh, a provincial backwater ruled by the latest conqueror on the block. Okay? Um, you know, e- even when you had Qing elites, Qing officials in Taiwan, they themselves saw it as a provincial backwater that they needed to modernize. Okay. Uh, they weren't taking pride in it as sort of like, oh, independent Taiwan, a long tradition of civilization here. No. So they, you know, they were okay to leave. Uh, in Korea, uh, there had long been a tradition of Korean educated elites saying, you know, not only have we long been autonomous, you know, we play off outside powers to the best we can to keep them out of our peninsula. And that's what they did. Maybe, maybe we'll go to Beijing and kowtow to the emperor, uh, but that's just for show. That's to make sure that we keep the emperor out of Korea. And even though China and Japan might think that Korea is formally subordinate to them, uh, Koreans uh, among themselves would say, we're independent. This, this is all just for show. All right? we, we have a long legacy of uh, playing off outside powers against one another and uh, tricking them into thinking that they rule Korea when really they don't. We rule ourselves. Not only that. Not only is there a sense of a political autonomy that has lasted for a long time, there's also a strong sense among Korean elites of that that, that, that they have maintained a superior Confucian culture than the Chinese did on the East Asian mainland. Okay? Uh, this is a very strong sentiment that you would see on, on Korea. We, and only we, embody the purest, undiluted Confucian form of learning and morals and values um, Anywhere in the world All right, the Japanese are country bumpkins Johnny-come-latelys. They never really fully embodied Confucian ideals to begin with and now they've become totally westernized and the Chinese were constantly diluted and brought low by barbarian invasions from the north by the nomads Only on Korea did we maintain a purest form of Confucian ideology All right, so there's a sense of not only political autonomy that has lasted for thousands of years, uh, but cultural superiority as well. It's not going to be easy for them to accept the Japanese as their new political and cultural overlords. As a result, Japanese-oriented education is not nearly as popular in Korea as in Taiwan. All right, so when I have my, you know, when I teach this in class, I have readings. Uh, That are from the first person perspective of Koreans when they were little kids being forced to go to Japanese schools or they weren't forced but they went there um, and uh, the discrimination that they would experience or how they would come home and their parents would say, you know, wouldn't let them in the house because you disgraced our family by, you know, attending uh, one day of school at the Japanese school that they set up nearby. And they would say, no, we have our own Confucian academies, you stay in our village and we'll teach you our own Confucian education in Korean. You're not going to that Japanese school. Not only that, Korea also has its own native non-Chinese script, the Hangul script, developed in the 15th century. And you know, to better express the uh, grammar of the Korean spoken language, which is totally unrelated to the Chinese spoken languages. Uh, More similar to Japanese, but they didn't take the Japanese route in creating the Japanese alphabet, the hiragana and katakana. They created another independent third alphabet, the Hangul script, to write Korean. It's an alphabetic script. So Japan now uh, has to compete with this uh, indigenized version of Chinese Confucian culture that the Koreans take so much pride in. And they have to compete with an indigenous script to express that culture, the Hangul script. So you're displacing a lot more In Korea, then you had to displace in Taiwan among a much larger population that dwarfs the Japanese population. And so in Korea, far more people will shun the Japanese schools and choose to attend private Confucian schools with nativist traditions. Economic policies will also encounter resistance. Korea never becomes fiscally self-sufficient. It's always an economic drain on Japan. It always requires what the Japanese consider to be very burdensome subsidies as a result you'll get less capital to invest in modern, modernization efforts agriculture will stagnate in korea but japan will still take the majority of the rice crop to feed the home islands because japan is shifting its economy towards heavy industry all right and they they they're, they're downsizing the agricultural sector so where are we going to get our food that's going to feed our population from the colonies from taiwan from korea and then eventually manchuria that's going to be you know the holy grail of uh, agricultural plenty, ninety percent of the Korean agricultural crop will be exported to feed the market in Japan. So Japan doesn't have to waste any, uh, you know, energy growing its own food anymore, and can devote itself to other more specialized areas of the modern economy. Okay, um, so what you get in Korea is, unlike Taiwan, the Japanese presence in Korea will feel much more like. You know, explicit colonial exploitation, with a lot fewer benefits to the local pol- uh, to, to the local pop- population, and this creates a vicious cycle. More resources, you're, the Japanese are getting fewer resources out of Korea. It's not as much room for development as you had in more sparsely populated Taiwan. Okay, Uh, Korea, you know, the agricultural product has already been developed uh, to its fullest extent by this point. All right. So you're getting fewer resources to begin with, but then you have to invest more resources into the military, into the police, into surveillance activities. Um, And then this creates less of an economic benefit because you're not investing in the local economy as much. Uh, So the Koreans aren't benefiting from your colonial presence as much as the Taiwanese are. And they're resisting it from the start a lot more as well. So the vicious cycle then is that you get this sort of uh, uh, resistance met by retaliations and then further disincentive to cooperate with the Japanese. So like I said, in Korea, far more violence. In March 1919, there is an uprising that the Japanese suppressed with 2,000 casualties. And that's sort of the big turning point for the Japanese, where they say, we need to change our approach. Uh, They'll imagine that they've had a handoff approach in Korea, and they'll say, at this point forward, uh, we need to change things. We need to uh, give the Koreans more opportunity, like the Taiwanese, to uh, have the same professional opportunities that Japanese have, uh, have opportunities to go to schools in Japan, work in Japan, and there'll be a huge Korean community uh, that'll be in Japan as well. Uh, But they'll also say, we need to clamp down on the Koreans a lot more as well. Uh, because clearly they're much more willing to fight back than the Taiwanese are. After March nineteen nineteen, there will be a Korean government in exile. First, it's located in Shanghai in the uh, foreign foreign uh, uh, concession of Shanghai, um, and then after the Japanese invade Shanghai, it's relocated to the United States. There is no Taiwanese government in exile. Okay, that alone is one of your best illustrations of the difference between the, these uh, two of the the two earliest Naichi colonies. And as we get into the episode, uh, when we get later on to the 1930s, we'll see that the Koreans are going to be exploited and repressed in the 1930s during wartime like no other colonial subjects. So before we end, my uh, takeaway pithy point, if you want to think of a way that uh, Taiwan and Korea will differ, both Naichi, both slated for full uh, cultural and political integration and assimilation at some distant date into the future. Um, However, Taiwan will generally... For all the circumstances and historical conditions that we've talked about in this episode, Taiwan will generally be uh, governed with the carrot. Korea will generally be governed with the stick. In other words, in Taiwan, the Japanese will approach and say, we're going to incentivize positive incentives for the Taiwanese to get on board, you know, the Japanese colonial train. Um, Whereas in Korea, it'll be much more of a punitive effort to say we need to punish the Koreans, get them in line, because uh, they don't want to get on our on the Japanese colonial train willingly. They don't know what's good for them, and they're resisting it. We need to drag them kicking and screaming into it, and make them realize that we're all the same family, and this is for their own good. Um, so Taiwan governed with positive incentives, Korea governed with uh, punitive uh, measures, um, and you know we can see in this episode. The historical background that sort of led to this uh, uh, difference in the way that these earliest two Naichi colonies were governed. All right, next time we're going to turn our attention to the cultural origins of all of East Asia, the donor state itself, China. How Japan got its first imperial foothold in China, and how it took over the role that Japan once had throughout East Asia as sort of the cultural leader. Uh, where you know whatever new political and cultural trends were emanating throughout East Asia uh, began in China first. And then this role had only recently been displaced by the Western empires, which Japan now in turn wants to displace. All right, hope you join me for Japan's Orient, The Rising Sun in China and episode 47 of Beyond Wasia.